atone for our sin. It's you that must save and you alone. And that is why even now we come with nothing in our hands. Nothing in our hands do we bring simply to the cross of Christ that we claim. Father, we come knowing that it's not just redemption, but Father, even our sanctification, even our growth in holiness and godliness, that ultimately must be a work from you. Father, we must seek it, we must work at it, but Father, the progress that we make comes because your spirit transforms our hearts. And so, Father, as we come before you now to hear from your word, Father, that's what we ask you to do, to transform our minds and our hearts. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. And Father, just as you spoke and creation leapt into existence, Father, we pray that you would speak now to our hearts and that godliness would grow up. Father, we ask these things both for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. This morning, we come to the last chapter of the book of Acts. We end a year's worth of sermons working through the history and the teaching and the example and the mission of the early church's ministry. And it may surprise you that as we come to the end of this, uh, this journey that Luke has taken us on, that he kind of ends the book in, a, in, a, in sort of an undramatic way. You know, we may expect some great speech, we may ex- expect some kind of great summary statement, but... That's not really what you find at the end of action. And we've been looking for the last several weeks waiting for Paul to get to Rome and to stand before Caesar to give his defense, final defense of Christianity. But we don't find that here. There's no rousing climactic event. In fact, the last account Luke gives us is very much the same thing that we have seen time and time again throughout the entire book. And I think that's the point Luke is trying to make. Luke here is getting an account of the early Christians and the expanding kingdom of God, and he purposely leaves that open-ended. If all we had was Luke, we wouldn't know what happened to Paul. We wouldn't know how he ended, how he, how he, what kind of uh, uh, reception he had at Caesar's court. I think Luke does this because he wants us to understand the mission of the church did not stop in the first century. The Great Commission didn't end when the apostles died off. They didn't complete the task of taking the gospel to the nations, to all peoples, making disciples of Christ. That same mission continues on through us today. The task is ongoing, and even for us in the 21st century, there is very much the sense that we should see ourselves as Acts chapter 29. And in case you haven't caught it, there is no 29 in the Bible, okay? That's the point. The mission of the church continues to be fulfilled through the church today. And as Luke brings everything together, essentially what he gives us is a passage that more or less summarizes all that we have seen about what it means to live the essentials, the basics of the Christian life, as we seek to see God's kingdom expanded through the nations. And so as we look now to God's Word, as we look to Acts chapter 28, to these final verses, what we want to see this morning is for our lives, what are four essential things as we seek to continue to fulfill the Great Commission? What are four essentials that should be a part of our life? 
This is this morning is nothing profound. It's nothing you have not heard before in the book of Acts. This is simply basic Christianity. And yet how often do we need to get back to the basics? How often do we just need to be reminded of the touchstone of our faith? How so easily when the basics are ignored, how we, we spin off into odd avenues and in odd places where uh, our focus is totally taken off where we need to be. And so Luke ends, I think, very helpfully with just reminding us about the consistent, faithful Christian life and how that brings about God's purposes for his church. So I invite you to follow along with me if you have a copy of God's Word. If you don't, you can find one in the pew in front of you. Acts chapter 28. We'll begin reading at verse 1. You remember Paul has just come through a, a pretty uh, amazing sea voyage and shipwreck. And according to God's word, all that were on board were saved. And then Luke tells us in verse 1, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. This is the island that they shipwrecked on. The native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publus who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered on the land, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putoloni. There we found brothers who were invited to stay and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And, we, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law and the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. 
The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So in the book of Acts, may God bless the reading of his word. Four things that we must do that I think is shown to us by example in Paul here. Four things that should be a part of our life as we seek again to just live out essential Christianity and long to see the gospel go to the nations. First, is that we must trust in God's sovereign care. We must trust in God's sovereign care. For quite a while now, Paul has been living in light of the promises of God. Not just promises made to him by the risen Christ about the salvation of his soul, but specific promises to Paul that in the providence of God, he would get to Rome to bear witness to the Gentiles and to the Jews there about the Christ. And since God first made those promises back in chapter 23 and again in chapter 27, Paul has survived numerous attempts of an assassination plot by the Jews. He's endured Roman prison. He's preserved, been preserved through a violent storm at sea, as well as a plan to kill him along with the other prisoners. And finally, a shipwreck. Paul's done it all in a very short amount of time. And the threats to that promise of God that he would get to Rome continue. For when they made it to the island of Malta, Luke says the native people had kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out of the heat, because of the heat, and fastened on his hand. Now some, and perhaps we may be tempted to do so because we know he doesn't die, may be tempted to think that somehow the snake bit into his coat or something and didn't actually bite him. Well... Frankly, I'm not an expert on vipers, and I know you aren't either. So let's take the Maltese people who live with these snakes every single day of their life at their word. And what do they say? When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They know this man was bit, and that kind of snake is poisonous, and they're just waiting for him to die. And they believe in this this God, justice, or fate. And they're saying, eventually, his sins have caught up with this man. He was surely a murderer, and now he's toast. He's wasted. But what do we read? He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And I, I love the Maltese people here. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. Now you can imagine they're all warming up by the fire, and Paul's there, and these guys are kind of hanging back, thinking, how much time do you think he's got left? I don't know, I, 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 there might be some puffiness there on the neck. I think the poison has taken effect, yeah? Think he's going to fall over? Think he's going to lay him on the fire? No, I don't think so. Think he's going to fall back? Man, maybe. But they're just waiting for him to die. And of course, Paul's there soaking wet, you know, uh, you know, trying to get worn up by the fire. And nothing happens. And they keep waiting, they keep waiting. And of course, they can't use the sundial because it's raining. But they're thinking, you know, time has passed. He should be dead. He didn't die. He must be a god. I mean, don't you just love how fickle people are? I mean, it's exactly... That's exactly how people are. If he's not a criminal, then he must be a god. Of course, neither of those explanations are right, is it? Are they? Paul has survived because God was protecting his life. He was under the sovereign care of the Lord. Paul had a very specific promise from God. You are going to Rome, Paul. You are going to Rome, and you will proclaim my gospel there. It's important that we understand, though, 
We have no such promise from God. God does not give us a specific promise and say, you're going to live to your 70 and you're going to proclaim the, the gospel to some people you've never met before. I'm going to ensure that no pain comes to you, that every accident that you get in, you will survive it, and, and that every life-threatening circumstance is not going to have an effect on you. I mean, we just know, both if we've read the scripture, but from experience, that just isn't true for Christians. This week I was looking through some books, trying to reorganize some things, and I came across a book that reminded me of United Airlines Flight 93 on its way from Newark to San Francisco in the morning of September 2001. And, of course, we know all the story, don't we, of Todd Beamer, who was a Christian, a graduate of Wheaton College, a very famous Christian school, who, uh, and after realizing what was going on and talking with people, led a few men in the Lord's Prayer and then stormed the cabin, seeking to take the plane over from terrorists. In the attempt, they died along with everyone else on that plane. Here is a man who, by all accounts, was a devoted Christian, and yet he was not protected from this fate that befell him and the other passengers. At the same time, though, we should not question the Lord's sovereign care because of that. Because all of us very much live under that care. Just because we aren't told what we will accomplish in life, like Paul was, we still enjoy the same protection that Paul did. Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And very often we proclaim that uh, in, in our salvation presentations. But forget the judgment part for a second and just focus on what Hebrews says at the beginning. It is appointed for man wants to die. Your death is appointed by God. The day, the time, the hour, the moment of your demise, God has planned from the beginning of the world. You don't just fall into some accident. You don't just, uh, you don't just through the cause of life, get some disease that takes over your body and, and consumes you. God knows exactly when that event is going to be. It will not come a moment before or a moment after when God has declared and therefore, like the great evangelist George Whitfield, a quote that we've heard before, we can say, we are immortal until our work is done. God is going to preserve your life just like he did Paul's until he's done using you for his kingdom. Until it's time for you to go and be with him. And so, frankly, what this should do is give us a certain sense of security and boldness, not to be foolish and stupid, but to take risk for the kingdom of God. You know, Jerry and Linda said that when they were going to Africa, they had a lot of people saying, why in the world are you going there? It's dangerous over there. So what? So what? What are we going to do? What God has commanded, proclaim the gospel to the nations. The Torag were the nations. They didn't have the gospel. And if it's God's desire for us to perish on that plane or in that country, it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. We can't, we can't stop it. We can't worry our life a longer moment or two. But how better to go out than in serving the Lord? And likewise today, perhaps even not on the mission field, but in times of great blessing as well as times of great sorrow, whether it's car crashes or poverty or cancer or any other number of things, as Christians, you are under the Lord's sovereign care. And even the most difficult circumstances that come into our lives, we can not only have confidence that God is still good, but that He is at work in our lives. Just looking back, do you imagine the kind of, the kind of uh, attention those Maltese people would have given to Paul after that? They'd have been hanging on his every word. And though we don't have record of it because it's not the focus of the passage, surely Paul has proclaimed the gospel to those people. 
And you think about all of the different circumstances that has happened in Paul's life all through the book of Acts. All of the beatings, the stonings, uh, all of the, 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 the being uh, betrayed by his own Christians when he arrived in Jerusalem for the first time. All of these things, and yet what is God doing? He is using these things to what? Further the gospel. You never read in, in any account of Paul that in some way somebody did not believe. That in some way the gospel did not go forward. The fact that we are under the sovereign care of God does not mean we will always escape pain, but it should give us confidence to live for His glory. By faith, we should not be consumed with worry and anxiety over our days, but consumed with trust in the goodness and the sovereign care of God over our lives. The second thing that, we should, that should be a part of our lives, the second thing that we should do in following Paul's example here, is that we should serve with loving humility. We should serve with loving humility. Paul has just been shipwrecked. And although, if you remember, the, the, the Roman uh, centurion that's in charge of these guys said basically, if they can swim, tell them to jump. If they can't swim, tell them to jump anyway, but, but go for the ship that's being broken apart in the, in, the, in the sea, and they'll kind of float on to shore. Well, we don't know if Paul was a swimmer or not. He could have been uh, like, uh, like my mom, who does not swim, deathly afraid of water. She would have been clinging on to those boards for, for all of her life. Some of you, uh, I, I've seen, and you would have been doing the, you know, the, the ten-point dive perfectly off the ship and, and going onto the sea. I doubt Paul was in that group, but I don't know if he can swim or not. Either way, he makes it onto the island. And you can imagine, he is, it, it's been a stressful experience. He's exhausted. I mean, you have to understand, Paul is not a spring chicken at this point. I mean, he's old, Okay. You know, and uh, you know, and some of you are old, and he's older than you. Okay, so so he's old. I mean, he is an old, beaten, broken down man who is still going for God. But you just know uh, he's probably pretty tired and exhausted from this ordeal. And I imagine if me or, or some of you were on that island, we would we would expect to lay down and have other people serve us. Other people maybe even carry us over to the fire to give us a blanket and warm us up. And what does Paul do? Luke tells us Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. Just no, no thought about what someone should do for him as the Apostle Paul. I wonder if Luke said, Paul, you need to sit down and take it easy. We just, we just came through this sea. And Paul's like, no, no, no. no. I, you know, they've made the fire. Let's help. Let's go get some sticks and, let, and, and, and let, let's help keep it going. Later on, Luke says the chief man of the island, most likely a governor or someone, receive them and entertain them hospitably for three days. And it's in the midst of their stay that they realize this man's father was sick with fever and dysentery. Scholars believe this is probably something called Malta fever, which is common and a very unpleasant illness caused by certain bacteria in the goat's milk on the island. Again, what would you do in a situation like that? Some of us, if we knew an individual had fever and dysentery, would probably not even want to be in the same room with them. We'd be afraid we'd get sick, and frankly the smell would be a little hard to take. What does Paul do? Paul goes right in and prays for him. He asks God to heal this man's father. Now, if you're cynical, you may think that was just payback for this guy allowing them to stay in the home. But notice what Luke says in verse 9. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases all came and were cured. Paul continues, you imagine, day after day receiving all kinds of sick people from all over the island, taking time to get close to them and offer prayers for their healing. Now, I doubt very seriously that any of us are going to go home and start ringing up the hospitals and telling them to send people over because we're going to start healing them at our home. I mean, if that happens, then let me know because I'll be over there. I've got some problems that we, we, we can get taken care of. But most of you, if not all of you, could follow Paul's example in picking up the firewood, couldn't we? 
we could follow Paul's example in imitating the kind of attitude that he displays here to serve with loving humility. You can observe what needs to be done, even perhaps unpleasant things that need to be done. Things that are going to cost you time and money and inconvenience. Things that are going to cause you to go out of your way to help. But nevertheless, you're able to help. And instead of thinking that we're too good for that kind of service, let's follow Paul's example and humble ourselves and minister to people in that way. Now, granted, most, most of us would not say not serving is prideful. Partly because very few of us ever want to admit there's pride in our life. But that's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what would be in our hearts that would cause us not to serve other people. Because when we fail to show practical displays of God's love, when we fail to go out of our way to serve others, both Christians and non-Christians alike, we do it because ultimately we think more highly of ourselves and our needs than them and theirs. And that's the definition of pride right there. Part of basic Christianity, though, can be summed up in Paul's words to the Philippians. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. If you didn't get it, here's the kicker. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You can't argue with that. Paul says, look, if it's good enough for the Son of God, it's good enough for you. Humble yourself, fulfill the role of a servant, and practically, practically, show the kind of love that God has shown for you. Humble yourself and serve others, even as Paul did here. As Christians, I think Paul's example is a great one to follow, but even better is Christ's example. We should be looking for opportunities to serve not just the people of this congregation, but the people of the city with loving humility. Third, we should commit ourselves to encouraging fellowship. We should commit to encouraging fellowship. Luke says, Paul and the other prisoners, the Roman soldiers, rode out the winter in Malta. And, and then uh, for three days they set sail for Rome. They stopped in Syracuse, went on to Regium and Putoli, uh, uh, Putaoli. And Luke says, there we found brothers who were invited to stay with them for seven, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. The Christians that were there in that area, Christians who had probably been read Paul's letter to the Romans not long before this, heard that Paul was coming and they went and sought him out. They left their homes and journeyed to fellowship with them. And the result is exactly as God intended and they had hoped. Paul thanked God and took courage. And friends, one of the essential elements of the Christian life that we have seen over and over again in the book of Acts is the necessity of Christian fellowship. In one of his books, Pastor Joshua Harris talks about meeting a guy named Robert who lived in Arizona. Harris said he was a nice guy who attended church, but if you really wanted to get him excited, you should ask him about his Jeep. See, his Jeep was his life. It was his baby, as he called it. He had shopped for two years to find the perfect yellow and black Wrangler. And he told Harris that once he had this Wrangler, he had to, of course, join the Jeep club. 
And Harris said, what in the world is the Jeep Club? And he said, he went on to explain, it has over 1,500 active members. It offers parties, trail runs, and a website that helps build community around Jeep ownership. Through the website, Robert learned the fine points of four-wheeling and deepened his love for all things Jeep. Robert said this, I was totally hooked. Every free moment was consumed. I was either working on a Jeep, playing in a Jeep run, run, hanging out and talking Jeep, or going online to check out the Jeep website. Well, anybody here own a Jeep? <laughs> I don't know of anybody, but you know what? We don't have to. Because if we really think hard enough, and it's probably not be that hard, we all have our own Jeep clubs, don't we? They may not be as formalized as Robert's Club, but they consume our time. They call for our devotion. They consume our thoughts in every waking moment. But you know what? The scriptures say there's only one group that should command that kind of devotion from us in our earthly, in our earthly lives, and that's God's church. That's God's people. I want you to stop and think about these Roman Christians who picked up and took off to minister to Paul when they found out he was there. You have to understand, this is not 21st century. There's no such thing as vacation time, okay? Most Christians, most people work seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Every single day you went to work. And for people that own their own business, it was even more, it was even more of a difficulty. These guys said, the Apostle Paul is worth more than making a living for the days it's going to take me to travel out to see him, fellowship with him, encourage him, and then come back to Rome. There's a serious level of commitment there. They're not just saying, well, yeah, I've got a couple days off. No, it's, there's nothing like that. I mean, literally, they are giving up food for bread for themselves and their families to go and minister to someone who is part of God's people. You say, why would they do something like that? Because they understood what Christian fellowship is really supposed to look like. Pause for a moment and think about all of the ways the scripture doesn't suggest, doesn't give hints at, but commands Christians to interact together as a church. Think about this. We are called to love one another, John 13. To honor one another, Romans 12. Rejoice with one another, Romans 12. To serve one another, Galatians 5. Carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6. Forgive one another, Ephesians 4. Offer hospitality to one another, 1 Peter 4. Confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, James 5. I, we could list more, but the question is, is that our frame of reference for how we live as Christians? Is our Christianity more focused on just ourselves and God? Or is it rooted in the relationship that God has put us in, not just with himself, but in his people? And are we thinking of fellowship in terms of interacting with one another so that we are encouraged and built up and grown in our faith in God? Pastor John Loftus says, Fellowship is participating together in the life and truth made possible by the Holy Spirit through our union with Christ. Fellowship is sharing something in common at the deepest possible level of human relationship, our experience of God himself. So if you really want to be encouraged, and if you want to encourage others, if you really want to be built up in your faith and help build up the faith of others, then you will commit yourself to God's people. More than any other group, more than any other organization, more than anything else in the world, you will say, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the people that Christ died to save. What could be more valuable and precious than them? It's not without reason. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another 
and all the more as you see the day of Christ's return drawing near. Not just in word, but in deed. You will find that fulfilling God's will is by committing to encouraging fellowship. Finally, if we were to follow Paul's example, if we were to understand the basics of the Christian life and seeking to fulfill God's mission, then we will proclaim a consistent message. We will proclaim a consistent message. When Paul comes to Rome, he is able to be confined in house arrest. He's not kept in a Roman jail. There's just a Roman jailer kept with him at his home. And so he's only there three days, and according to Luke, he calls together all of the local Jewish religious leaders. And remember, everywhere Paul has gone for years, the Jewish leaders have been hot on his tails, following him, making accusations about him, trying to get him arrested and killed, saying he's leading Jews to stop keeping the law, he's desecrated the temple, and on and on and on, all lies. And what they've really been upset about is the message that Paul was preaching. He wasn't preaching that Jews had to give up Jews, quite the opposite. He was preaching the glorious news, the great Jewish hope, the coming of the Messiah had arrived. He was preaching that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. Paul was preaching that this nobody named Jesus, nobody according to the world standards, was the long-promised Messiah. And that he didn't come as they expected, bringing political victory and freedom from the Romans. But rather, he came and he did, he did the unthinkable. He hung on a cross. He became a curse for his people. So that he might free them not in a political victory, but in a spiritual victory over their worst enemy's sin. But more than dying, Paul preached that Christ was raised back to life. And as the resurrected Christ, he was now the resurrected Lord of all creation and of all people. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, could turn to him in faith, trusting in him as Savior and following him as Lord, and they would be saved. Now he's in Rome and he's wondering, what have these Jews heard of me here? And they say, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, that is Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now put yourself in Paul's place here, and you have to know what the temptation is. The temptation is to come at these Jews at a different angle. The temptation is to tweak the message so they're not going to be as offended. They're not going to be as upset, as put off as they had been in every other place that he's been. But Luke says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him in his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. What is it? Same message. Same message that Peter preached in Pentecost all the way back in Acts chapter 2. It's the same message that Paul has preached in every single city he has went to. One consistent, driving, Christ-centered message delivered over and over again that people might be saved. And let me just say again, the example to follow is Paul because the great temptation, the great temptation in our lives today is to alter the message is to alter the message. Our great temptation is to make the message more palatable. Why? Because it's offensive, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, the gospel is an offensive message. It begins by saying, you are incapable of saving yourself because of the sin that's in your life. You are at your core a sinner, and you need redemption. Now, who wants to hear that today? Not many. And in fact, this has been driven all the more home to us if we've been keeping up with 
news events out in Washington State, there was this very famous, very beautiful nativity scene that was placed out. And someone came along and put a sign right next to it that said, Religion is myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Okay, major point. Christians didn't like that. They said, you shouldn't put that right next to the nativity scene. Put it across the street. We, we respect your right for free speech, but you, know, you shouldn't do this. Even non-Christians were offended by that. Because even nominal people in America still think somehow the nativity is sacrosanct. And they were interviewing different people about it. And here's what one guy said, a former pastor actually, Dan Barker. He was in favor of the sign being up. And he said, Christians basically stole this season from us human beings. Like somehow Christians aren't human beings. By using the hate speech of the nativity scene, which damns all of us to hell if we don't bow before that little baby who became a dictator. That's how he understands the gospel. And frankly, he's basically right. But in the twisted heart of sin that exists within him, he has turned the good news of God's mercy and love for humanity into hate speech and dictatorial rule. Yes, the New Testament teaches that unless ultimately you bow the knee, unless you receive salvation from Christ, you will perish forever in eternity of hell, justly condemned by God because of your sin. But God could have left us in our sin. Don't forget that. You know, sometimes... We, we think God owes us salvation. That somehow God had to send a Redeemer, a Savior. He didn't. There, there, God would have been perfectly just to condemn us to hell. But instead, he desired to show us what Paul says, the great love with which he loved us. And that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. The gospel isn't hate speech. It's the purest message of love and compassion that's ever been given. And the lordship of Christ isn't dictatorial. Yes, he is the absolute sovereign, but he is also the great shepherd who cares for the sheep of his flock. So just as in our passage where some believed and some offended, that is still going to happen today, folks. You're going to proclaim the gospel and some will embrace it. They will cherish it. They will live it out and others are going to scoff. Like this guy. And, and then the sinfulness of their hearts are going to take God's glorious message of good news and they're going to twist it into bad news and say, I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of that. And so the great temptation is to change the message. Because we don't want to offend anybody, right? I mean, this is the age of the political correctness. We've got to be nice to everybody. We can't say anything bad about anyone. But if we lose the gospel, folks, we've lost everything. If we lose that consistent message that Paul has been proclaiming over and over again, if we lose the message that the, the next generation of Christians and the next generation of Christians after that, a consistent gospel message that has been given over and over again, we've got nothing. We have nothing. Christianity is left with a vague spirituality that makes no assertions about anything, and godly living becomes magazine's advice and Dr. Phil soundbites. We're just lost and vacuous of any purpose, any reason for calling ourselves Christians. That's why we must hold on to the gospel message because ultimately it's not Paul's message. It's not any human message. It is God's message. It is his message of hope. It is his message of salvation for sins because of the death of his own son, Jesus Christ, for sinners. So not just as a church, as individuals, we must proclaim a consistent message. We don't tweak it, we don't modify it, we don't try and make it more palatable. But we boldly stand on the truth 
of the gospel. Because we know, apart from the proclamation of the gospel, no one will be saved. That's the message that we must share. Luke ends this great book of Acts telling us that Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the biblical equivalent of riding off into the sunset. The book is ending exactly how it began. God empowering his people on an unstoppable mission to take the gospel of Christ to all the peoples of the earth. And that mission is still being fulfilled today by us. And I want you to take comfort. I want you to be encouraged because the same God who empowered those apostles empowers his church today. The same calling and gifts that the apostles had and the early church had is still what we have today. The same mission that they were called to is the same mission that we are called to today. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, used to remind his congregation that all of them, in one way or another, was called to be a minister of God. And he encouraged his people with these words. And as we end the book of Acts, I want to encourage you with these same words. Here is what he said and what I would say to you this morning. Take courage, minister of God. You are nothing, but Almighty God is with you. When you lift your hand to build a house of the Lord, omnipotence works with you and makes your labor a success. The stars in their courses fight for you. The stones of the field are in league with you. Eternal wisdom plans for you. Infinite power works with you. Boundless patience preserves with you. And almighty love will conquer by you. The hand of the Lord was with them. What more do we want? So, brothers and sisters, for God has plowed. Go up and build, for God has prepared the stones and made ready the foundation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we end this book of Acts, Father, we're so thankful for your word to us that allows us to take confidence in your plan for our life. Father, we rejoice that you have called us not to a mission of foolishness, but God, a mission of salvation for the nations. An unstoppable mission, not because of our intelligence or wisdom, but because you yourself are guiding it, directing it, and empowering it. And Father, I pray now, Lord, that you will make us active in fulfilling this mission. That, Father, you will help us to truly see ourselves as the last unwritten chapter of Acts. Lord, those Christians that will continue to hold and trust the great treasure that was given to us in the gospel. And not compromise it, but, Father, because of it, to humbly serve those around us, to engage one another in encouraging biblical fellowship, all the while, Father, trusting in your sovereign care over our lives. Father, make us bold, not for our own sake, but for your sake and for the sake of those that have not yet heard. We ask all this in Jesus' name.